everything kind of comes together and culminates in a lot of the decisions that you make in command, especially when you're in, you know, sort of high pressure situations or highly dangerous or volatile situations. And you, you need to draw on everything and you need to be solid in everything because the cracks or the, you know, lack of foundations in any aspect of your life can often come back to sort of bite you in ways that you don't know. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. My guest today is James Harrop, who served for 19 years in the Royal Australian Navy as a submariner. James had always dreamt of being a submariner from an early age, and we actually had the fortune of serving together early in his career. It was clear then that James would achieve whatever he set his mind to, and did exactly that with his career in the Royal Australian Navy's submarine force. His career culminated with highly successful command of submarines HMAS Collins and HMAS Waller. Since leaving the Navy, James has had a number of roles in the oil and gas industry, a long, long way from submarines. He's been deeply involved in supply chain management, global strategy, organisational design and change management. He now works as an independent consultant from his home in Alaska, providing specialist advice on issues such as asset improvement, inventory optimisation, business development and digital innovation. What I loved about the conversation was that James actually has a personal connection through his family on both sides with Winston Churchill, the World War II Prime Minister of Britain. His key lessons around leadership and he shared a really personal story that showed some of the grit that he has inspired by his eldest brother. The other aspects, of course, were his professional curiosity and how you grow and how you develop and how you immerse yourself in a new team to understand exactly how it's working. So let's jump right in. Well, James, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, great. Uh, thank, you know, thanks for the, uh, for the opportunity then, uh, Martin. Yeah. Well, James, look, the question I always ask my guests first up is, how did you end up joining the service, or in your case, the Royal Australian Navy? Yeah, so I guess it was a decision that was made really quite early on for me, you know, sort of about uh, year 10 in high school. I Kind of hard to, to define sort of exactly why, but I mean, my dad served in the Royal Navy for a short period of time before he uh, got out and became an engineer. But as a kid, we always moved around a lot. I kind of enjoyed that as a kid, you know, sort of back then, you know, the concept of, oh, yeah, you know, join the service and you can move around, join the Navy, see the world, any of those things I kind of bought into those stories. And yeah, so that was, you know, that was uh, that was part of the attraction. Mm. Also, you know, to be honest, dad was in and out of work quite a bit throughout his life. And the idea of a of a secure job was appealing to me, you know, sort of at that time as a as a high school student as well. So, mm. Yeah, you know, it seemed a pretty simple decision. And I actually, at a recent school reunion, I got awarded the prize of the guy who did exactly what he said he was going to do. Right. Because <laughs> when I was at school, I said, I'm going to join the Navy and I'm going to become a submarine captain. And then I went out and that's exactly what I did. And yeah, you know, at the time, it, it seemed like I was just kind of like following the next logical step in, in the plan that I'd laid out. Mm. But looking back on it, you know, I guess there's not a lot of sort of 15-year-olds who who were able to sort of set a goal at 
you know, at that point in their life and then, you know, go through and see it through to completion. So Yeah. I actually do know what that looks like, having done the same. Yeah, right. There you go. But and you know what? I, I, of course, we met very early in your career, and I do remember you being very, very focused about where you were going. So uh, that obviously followed through, and is true. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, that time on Brisbane was it was a you know definitely sort of a key learning point you know throughout my naval career, and and you know obviously a key key time in my life as well. You know, when when you first, you know, that first sort of real job that you do outside the training system in the Navy is definitely sort of the time when you realise, oh, hang on, you know, it's no longer just about training. And being someone who went from school to ADFA to, you know, sort of SEAC uh, straight away and, and stuff like that, mm. it was really the first time in my life that I'd been, you know, sort of outside the training system with with something else to do. So, mm. yeah, it was it was definitely, a you know, a good time and I think having, fo- having a bit of focus... Uh, helped at that time absolutely so look who were the leadership heroes or influences on you growing up is there somebody you look back on and go actually that person you know shaped my early leadership thoughts so probably in early times you know growing up before I joined the defense force it was you know I read several books you know sort of history and and leadership and stuff you know quite you know clearly in my family there's actually a family connection with Winston Churchill on both sides of the family so you know he's a character who always sort of featured uh, quite largely he was a personal friend of my uh, grandfather wow so yeah you know that was you know i'd have to say you know churchill and also you know montgomery of alamein mm. you know sort of classic second world war generals on the british side mm. but yeah you know so they were they were the main focus i guess mm. yeah well those those are not insignificant are they no no definitely not <laughs> and actually it's yeah the more my brothers and I have sort of delved into it, that Churchill connection is, yeah, is really quite, you know, sort of quite an interesting one. It was definitely more than just sort of a passing engagement. So, yeah, yeah, that was a, you know, it's, yeah, it's a bit of a good family story there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, there was, there was certainly a, a, a character large in life and somebody that actually people looked at to on a regular basis to, uh, to, you know, in terms of leadership, particularly through sort of something that was so complex and so... So challenging, I guess, when you're trying to move people in a direction in, in that particular environment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I think leadership is very contextual, mm. and you know, as is often the case when you look back on anybody throughout throughout time, you know, any of these great leaders, is in the context in which they appear and emerge onto the world scene as a great leader. That is always a you know that's one context but then you know when history looks back at the overall life of these people you often see a very different story and i think it's important to understand that mm. and to see that you know all great leaders are are just people just like anybody else mm. and they're people in a situation and yeah i mean i think the world is witnessing that right now with you know i think the you know the best politician of current times or or you know the best leader of current times being the president of ukraine yeah, uh, you know, very, very well admired globally, I think. Mm. But someone who has just had had greatness thrust upon him, yes. rather than uh, engineered himself into that position. Yeah, and so that that comes down to almost what's our response when those circumstances arise, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's as much it's as much how you respond to the world around you as anything else. Mm. It's definitely leadership's not. I don't believe leadership's something that people are born with. I believe it's something that people can develop throughout their life. Mm. 
I think, you know, the kind of military training we have in Australia is very good for developing a certain kind of leader, mm. but it's definitely not the only way to go. And it's definitely, and the kind of leaders it develops are definitely not the only kind of leaders that are out there. Yeah. So what were those early influences on you in your in your early Navy career? Were there, was there a moment there where you went, actually, this is good leadership, or perhaps it was something else? Yeah. Well, so, of course, I have to say, you know, like the XO of HMAS Brisbane when I was a, <laughs> when I was a place for there. Sure. Probably not, but anyway, go on. I think it was once I began to realise the complexity of, you know, of a lot of the decisions that were being made, that I was able to sort of really identify the people who I thought were were very strong leaders or good leaders. You know, and that a lot of that didn't come until sort of a little later in my career, you know, when I was a warfare officer or, or a navigator, mm. to understand, you know, just sort of the entire breadth of any, you know, sort of good leadership, it's consistency, it's seldom a single decision, it's, you know, it's the overall way that you go about sort of achieving a long-term goal. Mm. You know, I'm fortunate enough to say, you know, I think of all of the commanding officers that I ever had when serving at sea, none of them I would classify as bad leaders. Uh-huh. None of them, you know, I, I never had any, you know, difficult or, you know, bad experiences with my chain of command. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's a few that stand out as better than others, ones that I clicked with better. Uh-huh. A couple of specific examples, you know, one which, you know, I think will always stand out to me is Greg Samet. Mm-hmm. When I was uh, his navigator on board HMAS Falcon, yeah, he's someone who's definitely not known as as an easy guy to get on with, but someone who, after working for him for a while, I you know developed this incredible respect for because he was absolutely everything that he said he was supposed to be, mm-hmm. and and very much, you know, sort of knew he knew his business, he knew his stuff, and there was a method to everything that he did. That was great. Mm-hmm. There's also you know sort of a, another commanding officer I had after Greg was Horton Wiltshire mm-hmm. on board HMAS Sheehan. He was probably the most charismatic uh, commanding officer that I ever mm-hmm. had in terms of someone that everybody just, everyone in the crew just wanted to work their best for the CO because he was just one of those energetic characters who was always out there. And, and it didn't matter what the what the boat's program was. You know, at the time we were coming out of Adelaide in, in uh, trials, pre-commissioning, and then, and then just after uh, commissioning of the vessel, it wasn't a you know a sexy operational program or anything like that, mm. but he was able to enthuse the crew to to go ahead and and just sort of achieve the aim no matter what it was, mm. and that was you know that was definitely very special. Yeah, it's something I guess along the way we almost take a little bit out of each one of those that we that we experience, isn't it? Those leadership experiences that we have. Yeah. Mm. So as you've sort of alluded to already, uh, is that you went down the path of uh, becoming a submarine captain. What was that like? So, you know, I was, it was a challenge throughout, but it was a it was a clear path that I was able to I was able to see well ahead. I mean, one of the differences of submarine command over surface vessel command or, or other commands in fence, I believe, is that it was a very clear pathway to do that. You know, as a submariner you have to qualify, you know, as a submariner, get your dolphins, as a warfare officer, you know, sort of there was a very set path of jobs. You know, you're a navigator, you're a sonar officer, you're an operations officer, you're an XO, you're a CO. It went, you know, sort of that way. There was a series of professional development courses between each individual job and, you know, leading up to, of course, the perisher course, which is the uh, the command qualification. Oh. I did my perisher course in 2007. We 
at that time were doing it with the Netherlands. That's recently changed. Australia's running its own perisher course. I think this year might be the first one. Yeah, right. And previous to doing the course in the Netherlands, we did the course with the Brits. Mm. Yeah, the perisher course was a highlight of my career for sure. And, you know, and is the pivotal moment in getting towards submarine command. It is a, absolutely a pass fail. On my course, there were only four students, uh, two Australians, a Singaporean and a, and a Dutchman. Unfortunately, the other Australian who was with me uh, didn't pass at that time. And Australia, I think, since that period has had probably about as only a 50 to 60% pass rate on that course. And, you know, so it is very much a, you know, sort of a stake in the road or a hurdle that, that everybody has to get past. And yeah, but, you know, that was kind of like the key event in the pathway to command. And yeah, obviously, you know, command, when you're in command, you're drawing on the entirety of your experience, you know, not just any one course or any one piece of your training. Mm. But I will say that that five months that was spent there was you know, the most intense learning environment that I, I think I've ever experienced. Yeah. So what do you take out of that? I mean, your observations of, you know, what are the success factors in that environment where, where there's such a high bar for achievement and, and getting that qualification? Look, yeah, so there's a bunch of success factors. You know, obviously, you know, the formal ones are around sort of technical competence and ability, you know, sort of periscope skills, you know, sort of warfare knowledge, a lot of that sort of stuff. But I think the ones that really matter are around developing resilience for, you know, what is the whole, the final month of the course, the final month of the course is all at sea in a high intensity warfare environment and, wow. and being able to sort of stay focused and be on the ball for the entirety of that month wow. is a key part of it. So there's sort of personal resilience element. There's the element of being able to quickly assimilate and understand your situation, understand your surroundings, you know, Keep a focus on the, you know, sort of on the the safety of your submarine, on, you know, sort of on uh, achieving the aim as well. You know, we would always say throughout the parachute, you know, the, th the three aims are, you know, sort of safety of submarine and personnel, remaining undetected and achieving the aim. Wow. And those three, and usually in that order, are what you are focusing on. But definitely the most important thing that I learned from that was what I learned about myself. It wasn't about what I learned about sort of tactics or, or anything else. It was the personal journey. It was where my own limits are. Mm. What are my own weaknesses? Mm. I did have on that course a very personal experience sort of halfway through one of the days when I was acting as duty captain and the submarine was getting hammered by aircraft and, and, and the rest of the, the NATO vessels that were patrolling around and stuff and mm. And a few fishing boats as well that always presented like a safety hazard that, that was one of the key issues you had to manage. And there was a period we were in the, the Inner Hebrides Islands off the, the western coast of Scotland. And we were coming south and it was, I think, just after sunrise. And I was looking through the periscope and I saw a place called uh, Cliff Rock on the Isle of Skye, uh -huh. which is actually where my elder brother committed suicide. Wow. Several years prior yeah, and seeing that through the periscope at a time when yeah, I'd never I've never been to the Isle of Skye. I'd I'd never never sort of been back there, but I knew I knew it was out there. I'd I'd identified this on the chart, and then sort of seeing that at a time when I was under huge stress on the submarine. No one else on the boat knew that story. Wow. And I just said to myself, I'm not going to fail this course today. Ooh. And that was you know that was one of those kind of 
grit moments where you just have to dig deep and go, not going to fail this today. You know, here I go. So it's that kind of level of really just sort of pulling yourself inside out to really dig deep to what you've got was, yeah, and the ability to know what that feels like, I think is, is important. It's important for command and it's important for kind of the rest of your life to understand those sort of things. I'm having goosebumps, James. Thank you for sharing that story because it's such a personal one. And I can't help but think that, as you said, you can always go another level deeper when you need to, when you're dealing with something particularly particularly tough and particularly challenging. Yeah. And, and in those circumstances, of course, it wasn't only the, the course on that day, but it was the memories of, of your brother. Yeah, look, I mean, and you're right about needing to go another level deeper. And, and the reason that I sort of brought that up as well is because I think a key element of military command and and leadership is it's about the whole person. It's not about just who you are in uniform or just who you are when you're standing on the bridge of a ship or mm. or whatever. It's about sort of everything you do. It has to be part of your whole being. Mm. And, you know, the reason why, you know, sort of I, I mentioned that just then was was that was to me the greatest example of that is that everything kind of comes together and culminates in a lot of the decisions that you you make in command especially when you're in you know sort of high pressure situations or or highly dangerous or volatile situations Mm. and you you need to draw on everything Mm. and you need to be solid in everything because a you know, sort of the cracks or the, you know, lack of foundations in any aspect of your life can often mm. come back to sort of bite you in ways that you don't know. So, you know, you know, I think one of the key lessons that I learned, you know, through the Persia course, but also, you know, sort of throughout my entire Navy career was mm. was around, you know, the need to, to be the whole person. Mm. It's what you are more than what you do. And that's actually a difference between, I think, Navy and defence leadership versus uh, corporate leadership. I don't think there are many positions in corporate leadership where mm. it's so all-encompassing and all-consuming yeah. as what you need in defence leadership. Do you think there are circumstances, though, in the corporate world where it needs to be more, that you need to be more invested, more... Oh, absolutely. ...more of yourself? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely there are some. Mm. Yeah, so, so, you know, I think, you know, when I left the Navy... I was working for Shell several years and, you know, there are obvious parallels between the offshore installation manager on an offshore oil and gas platform and, you know, sort of a, a commander at sea or a, a sort of military leader. You're, you're in a high hazard environment. You are sort of like the primary point of contact for the entire crew or workforce that you have on that platform. You know, so there's some strong and, and clear parallels there. That's an example of a job for someone where, you know, it is kind of about your whole person. Mm. You know, I think obviously in politics these days, not that I've had any political experience, but I think, you know, that's quite clearly, you know, you're assessed on every aspect of your life. One of the reasons why it doesn't appeal to me, to be honest. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's, yeah, there's there's several others out there, you know, as a founder of a company, as a founder of a startup, Mm. you know, you are, you know, often that is that is all encompassing. You're quite often all in. In, in what you're, you know, sort of what you're leading or, or what you're driving for, what you're trying to create. Mm. And that therefore, you know, sort of cascades back onto sort of every bit of your of your personality as well. So there's definitely plenty of jobs that are out there that are also all-encompassing. Yeah. We know it doesn't go well all the time. You know, is there a 
big lesson? Was there a moment in your submarine career when you're out there being the captain of a submarine where you go, oh, that was a moment I wish I'd done differently perhaps uh, with leading people? Yeah, look, there were definitely several of those where if I had a do-over, I would, yeah, I would clearly have made different decisions or done things differently. Yeah. You know, I'll say, you know, sort of one, you know, somewhat of a story which I look back on with amusement now. It wasn't as a as a CO, but it was uh, it was as a navigator on the uh, on the submarine when we we arrived at a port an hour early because I'd got the time zone change wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, that's you know, sort of the, back in the days before you know, sort of mobile phones or you know, sort of time written everywhere. It was quite a you know, it was something that you often didn't realise until you um you know, sort of until you're waiting for the pilot boat at the boarding point. And we were there at nine o'clock and they said they'd be there at nine o'clock and we called them up and, and and they we couldn't see the vessel and and they said yeah yeah we'll be there at nine o'clock in an hour's time yeah and yeah you know that was that was somewhat of a uh, I look back now with amusement but you know the captain who was Greg Samet was definitely not happy about <laughs> about that but I I learned an awful lot yeah you know just about that kind of you know attention to detail and um, yeah. you know and folks and knowing the things which only you were going to check. Mm. and how that's different from the things where other people may also be able to check them for you. Mm. Within my own command, I think, you know, I had one particularly high-stress situation where we were sailing into an operational workup and as we were about to start a, a CaseX, it was at night, we had several frigates that were coming to sort of close on the datum, submarine start snorting in a known location, the ships come in and... Yeah and conduct a bunch of uh, simulated attacks and as we were as the ships were closing in and we were just about to go deep we conducted an urgent depth change and then were firing the, sig the submerged signal ejector to uh, you know to indicate a um, you know green grenade and and start the the casex and just for those that don't know a green grenade is a green grenade is for simulating your fire a torpedo against the yes yes correct yeah. And often in, you know, sort of often in exercises, they're also used to mark, yeah, sort of this is where the submarine is mm. so that the ships can go and sort of do their close ASW practice. Yeah. In this case, as the sailor was loading it in, into the signal ejector, it prematurely exploded. Oh. And so we had a, you know, a pyrotechnic actuation, a fire, a casualty from the sailor who, who had her hands burnt when she was, when she was loading this thing. Mm. Submarine instantly filled with smoke. We're all on our breathing apparatus. It was one of those events that we have absolutely trained for. It's it's actually, it was so close to a well-known sea training group scenario that many of the crew, until at least halfway through the incident, believed that it was a sea training group incident and just thought, wow, this is really real smoke that they're using this time. But it was, it, you know, it was 100% real. And the danger was very real, you know, sort of at the time, the you know sort of the the immediate actions as as a CO I you know so I had to take the con and take command of the submarine you know directly in the control room and try and get us to the surface which of course was complicated by the fact that we had three frigates zigzagging mm. over exactly where we just were because we just fired this green grenade mm. there was so there was a lot going on there I will say that was a time when when I had to sort of draw on every part of my uh, training and professional knowledge to be able to to make sure that that we could get back to get back to the periscope depth safely and then, and then surface and then take the other necessary actions. Mm. But also I realised the absolute importance of not just the training that we were doing because, you know, it was the training was so close to reality in that case, 
but also just how much you rely on every member of the crew in a situation like that to do their job and to perform their best. And, you know, I'm pleased to say that everybody absolutely did. So it was an incredible experience of things going wrong. Definitely, you know, shouldn't have happened. But then the crew being able to pull the vessel out of it mm. and turned what was what was a, you know potentially an incredibly dangerous situation into something that everybody was very much able to learn from. So yeah, that's definitely one that sticks in my mind. Yeah, there's certainly a lesson there, isn't there, in terms of a crisis, whether in corporate world, where you know realizing that. If you might be the captain of your organisation, but you don't need to be the only one getting engaged to solve a problem. You do need to bring the whole team in and uh, and also have created that environment before that incident occurs to be able to do that well. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I think in the corporate world, crises seldom occur with the same element of time criticality as they do in military circumstances. You know, they seldom occur in real time. You know, you usually have sort of a, a much more sort of extended period of time as these things unfold. But, yeah, it's still very much reliant on the team that you have around you, the abilities of the people that you have around you and the organisation that you can sort of bring to bear to make sure that, you know, everybody will act in the same way or in a predictable way that's aligned with what you're trying to do. Mm. And I think, you know, one of the key elements of leadership is understanding your team, your environment, and being so clear, you know, the way that in so much of, of leadership, it's always about being so clear about the aim and the commander's intent or, you know, what's the mission you're focused on mm. to ensure that, that when acting independently, people are still going to be going in the same direction or in the right direction. Yeah. And, yeah, I think one of the challenges in the corporate world is that that clarity of mission and clarity of intent is seldom as obvious and as easy to state as it may be in the military. Yeah. And even if you spend that time working through that, you know, a sort of strategy session, those traditional activities, the corporate world, and we do them in the military as well, but very easy to lose sight of that once you're out of that room, isn't it? Um, you know, when you're engaged in day-to-day business uh, you know, somewhere else in that, in that time frame. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very easy to lose sight of the strategy of the mission. Also very difficult to understand the incentives that are out there because there's often very difficult or different sort of incentivization that that individuals will be working towards mm. so yeah it's important to understand those differences for any military person you know sort of when they're in the corporate world to just see sort of how how diverse that can be it's it's seldom that a corporate strategy is ever as clear and focused as what a military one can be yeah well so, yeah, we could spend, I reckon, the podcast just talking about your time in submarines, James. But you made the transition and, and the decision to leave the Navy in a, from a career point, I guess, that was in sort of ascendancy. And so what was the, what was the cause for you to, to make a transition from that sort of successful naval career that, and uh, into corporate world? Yeah, so fair question. It was I did leave direct from command, which is uncommon. I was... And it was very direct as well. I was at sea conducting high-end warfare five days before I was out of uniform, just due to the nature of of, uh, of difficulty of being of being relieved at the end of that command cycle. Yeah. But look, it was you know it was personal choice. I um you know I always say look I joined the navy. I never expected that I would stay as long as I did, but I I'm glad I did, and I'm glad I stayed as long as I did, and I'm glad I left when I did. For me personally, I wanted to 
to move on and do some different things. I saw after command a career which was you know, heading towards Canberra and you know and driving you know, driving a desk or something in Canberra, which may may or may not have, have been the case to be honest, but but that was that was what I presumed the case to be. And I decided that I wanted to try something different, wanted to work in a different environment. Oh. I was living in Perth at the time. You know, it was the midst of an oil and gas boom. You know, so so I think it would be wrong to say that it didn't play into my mind as well. I wanted to, yeah, to make sure that I, I left at a time when I had, a you know, a bunch of good memories from the Navy mm. and and then, you know, sort of was able to take advantage of the, you know, sort of the commercial environment that was out there at the time in terms of being able to make a break into an industry that wasn't the defence industry. That was very important for me. I didn't want to to leave the Navy to go and work in defence for a defence provider or to go and work in another part of government. I wanted to do something totally different. Mm. Hence, you know, going and working for Shell. Mm. Yeah. And in terms of what you took from your military service into that corporate, what were you, we've probably maybe even covered them already, but... What are those sort of top three lessons from the military that you found useful going into the corporate world? Yeah, so, you know, I think definitely the top one was was the understanding of myself, understanding of my own limits. I think there was also an understanding of how communications works and how to communicate clearly, even though there's a very big difference between the kind of communication that you do in the military versus communication within a corporate environment. You know, the directness that military people are accustomed to and, you know, so accustomed to receiving and accustomed to telling people in, you know, very direct manner on, on what they want done. That wasn't well received. And I, uh, and I don't think that that is generally well received in, in many uh, cases. So there was, there's a lesson there on communication. And I think there was a lesson there on being able to operate in an environment of low certainty. You know, often in submarines, you don't have a lot of information coming in. You have to make the best use of the information that you've got. Mm. which can be very limited and, and make judgments sort of based on that and then just go ahead and do things, you know, just take a message to Garcia, you know, mm. to be able to to just work with what you've got at hand to, you know, sort of achieve the aim that you've got to achieve without continually going back and asking for assistance or referencing or, or getting stuck looking for, and waiting for other things. You know, quite often in the corporate world, there's often a hesitancy to act and to take personal accountability until you've ticked all the boxes or or have have really clarified everything and it's about a risk threshold i guess mm. so being able to sort of understand that and operate in a condition of uncertainty was probably one of the key things that i feel i brought with me yeah and it certainly needs deliberate action doesn't it to create that environment where people feel like they can take some increase their own personal risk threshold to take more responsibility more accountability that that's a deliberate activity that or deliberate behavior that's got to occur in that environment for people to see that that's okay yeah yeah that's that's very true and that gets back to that idea of of being able to understand your environment to understand sort of motivations of people you know build the right team assess the abilities of your team all of those kind of things that are parallel with sort of military or corporate life Mm. and yeah to be able to work on a sort of a a principles and outcomes based approach rather than a strict you know process or rules based approach yeah you know, I'm always a, a believer that, you know, rules are for the guidance of the wise and strict adherence of fools. Mm. And, you know, that's that's definitely not a view that, that everybody will subscribe to, but it's it's one that I've always subscribed to. Yeah. So 
What are the things that you've found as you've embarked on this corporate career that the military didn't teach you? Yeah, so so one of them I've touched on already, which is communication and, you know, sort of the, a lot of the complexities and the subtleties of communication in the corporate world. I think, you know, sort of the, the military environment is a lot more homogenous when it comes to both the cultures that you're dealing with and also, you know, the way in which people interact with each other. It's very different in the commercial world, very dependent on organisations and, you know, what company you're working in, what industry you're working in, the people that you're working with international cultures that you're dealing with, all of that sort of stuff. So that's that's something where I feel I really had to up my game straight away. I think the personal competitive element is clearly one as well. In any corporate organization, especially large corporate organizations, you know, where you have, you know, very different sort of incentivization structures, personal bonus structures, any of that sort of stuff, there's an element of competitiveness individually. And that's something which I never experienced in in the military, especially in the submarine force, where everybody was looking out for everybody else because we're perennially short of people. Yeah. You know, it's different in the military where, you know, you've always got a much wider group of people who are vying for that next promotion and nobody's entitled to it. So, yeah, I think that was clearly one. And also I think the entrepreneurship is one which, again, probably organizational organizationally dependent on where you're working in the corporate world. But that ability to and requirement that you have to, you know, not just exist within the systems or the boundaries that are there for the company, but to be able to go out, see opportunities, understand what a commercial opportunity is, and then be able to bring it to bear. There's a lot of sort of skills and practices and things in that that you just, at least, you know, in military career career that I had, you had no exposure to whatsoever. Um, Yeah. So. You might have got some of those in Canberra if you ever ended up there. But, well, perhaps, yeah, there you go. You know, perhaps, perhaps a lot of that, uh, yeah, navigating the political system would have been, yeah, yeah, would have been, yeah, more apparent if, had I been there. Yeah, I have to, Canberra in the political scene is definitely a bit more grey than the black and white of the front line for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I used to always tell my warfare officers that you need to learn to navigate in the grey. Yeah. I had one guy in particular who always was very kind of black and white, and, mm-hmm. and I was like, dude, you got to learn to navigate in the grey. But you're quite right. Even the grey when you're at sea is a lot more black and white than, than what it is when you're in a, you know, sort of a more complex, politically complex environment. Yeah. So what would be your best advice for someone who's like looking to lean into leadership every day today, you know, in the modern corporate world, you know, what are those sort of, you know, James's lessons on, on leaning into leadership? So, look, I think one of the most significant ones is taking your own personal accountability, understanding about yourself, understanding your own strengths and weaknesses. And if you think that you don't have any weaknesses or you don't have any limits, then you're kidding yourself. You clearly don't know yourself well enough. So understand where they are. Understand when to ask for help and how to ask for help in the sort of situations that you're in. So that's that's one. The other one is, you know, that concept of being able to take a message to Garcia. Mm which, you know, many military people are familiar with that bit of prose. I think it, it was, uh, it dates from like the early uh, 1900s or, or something like that. Yeah. I know the US military, uh, I've got many friends over here in the US military who consistently sort of refer to that, you know, sort of it's, it obviously is a big part of their officer uh, leadership training. But mm. that ability to be able to identify, you know, what is the what is the main the main aim that you're trying to achieve and then just go off and achieve it knowing the organisational support that that is there and available, 
and the processes that you need to follow, but but at the same time not being rigidly bound by those sort of things, by you know keeping a focus on on the aim that you're seeking to achieve, rather than the the process that you're going out to do it. You know, one of the one of the challenges in defence, I think, is at the heart of of what we do, even though we often fail to admit it or don't like to admit it, it's a government job and there's always, you know, sort of a process to be followed and there is a an inherent lack of uh, flexibility in some things. You may have a, a huge amount of, of flexibility or scope within a certain part of your job, but then there are other principles or processes, you know, for example, you know, anything financial to any defence people where you act, have absolutely no say whatsoever. Mm. And you know, so the ability to be able to harness the full scope of the processes or the organizational capabilities that are available to you is a key thing. And understanding those differences, you know, sort of in the corp- between the corporate world and, and defense is key. Yeah, awesome. So along the way, what are the, some of the resources that have helped you sort of continue to have a growth mindset with regards to leadership? What have you done to kind of contribute to that? Or what are the go-to books or resources? Yeah, so I think one of the main things is having and maintaining a professional curiosity oh. about what you're doing. When, you know, often, you know, having that that understanding of, hey, I'm in a new organisation. When I got into the oil and gas industry, I would make it a part of my job, at least in the first few years of working for Shell, to, you know, go around and either visit the offices or, or just call up almost random people who are in jobs or doing jobs, performing roles that I didn't know much about and just, you know, put myself out there, go and introduce myself and, you know, say, hey, let's let's catch up for a coffee. I want to understand about what you do. You know, how do you how do you go about drilling a deep water oil and gas well? Mm. How do you go about managing a fleet of LNG tankers? Mm. You know, sort of how does the, you know, sort of the contracts and procurement process work within the company? Mm. You know, those sort of those sort of things. So that, you know, healthy professional curiosity. I think is definitely you know one of those one of those key things. Continuing to read and, and maintain an awareness of the industry that you're in through journals or you know just knowing the contemporary news items and, and what's happening around the world. You know the global energy industry is something that you know that, that I I've found it quite you know and I still do find it incredibly interesting. It's it's got a history that's every bit as complex and involved as the military history. Oh. It's got you know, sort of it's every bit as diverse and global as any kind of sort of uh, military or, you know, political studies. And so there's plenty of stuff out there, podcasts, books, journals, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So and I would highly encourage anybody who's looking at that to understand and really understand your target industry because they're not all the same. Yeah. James, it's been absolutely fascinating. Despite the fact that we've known each other a long time, just so humbled to, for you to share those stories of your time in submarine and being a submarine captain. We could go on for longer. I look forward to the chance for us to catch up face to face, given that you're in Alaska at the moment, on the other side of the, of the world almost, yeah. from here in Australia. But I want to wrap up with sort of the rapid fire questions. As I say to the guests, they might be rapid fire questions. They don't necessarily have to be rapid fire answers. Uh, but so feel free to expand as necessary. But right, okay. Can I get you to fill in the blank? So the first question is: leadership is blank. Inspiring and convincing others to achieve the mission, mm. whatever that mission may be. Yeah, so good. What's your go-to leadership book? And I reckon you've probably got a few. But is there one you could pick out? 
Yeah, I do have a few, but I think Lincoln, Commander-in-Chief, uh-huh. is a key one. Australians tend not to, at least, you know, I didn't study much of the American Civil War uh-huh. prior to coming over here to the US. Fascinating period of history. Uh-huh. And yeah, you know, Lincoln and his leadership throughout that war was just phenomenal. Uh-huh. The third question, I wish I had known blank earlier in my career. The power that you have as a frontline commander to challenge things and not accept substandard performance from your support system. Mm. So a bit of a wordy answer, but (laughs) you know, I think as a leader at the front line of the military, the military system should be there to support you. Mm. And if it's not, you should be vocal in your opposition to things that are getting in your way and things that are not, not performing the way that they should. Yeah. Because that's, that's what it's all there for. Yeah, and I'm, I'm figuring, I guess, there's probably a, an application of that in the corporate world as well. If there's, we've got a focus on mission, then the whole organisation should probably be aligned behind that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, it's seldom that there's one corporate organisational mission at any time, but when there is, it's absolutely critical that everybody understands and does work towards that, mm. for sure. Yeah. Fourth question is you get a call from a team member, a crisis has just erupted in your organization company what are your first words to that person did anyone die Mm. often you know sort of somewhat you know sort of might be a bit of a a glib response but it highlights the difference between i think the kind of military situations that you can face versus the kind of things that constitute a crisis in the commercial world now sometimes they can be every bit as dangerous you know offshore oil and gas world is definitely one of those Mm. but for many you know, corporate issues, yeah, crisis is not the same. But being able to to level some point of perspective or provide some point of perspective is always key. And sometimes I like going kind of over the top to say, well, here's what it's not. Here's what this crisis is not about. So let's bring it back from there. Hence, did anyone die? Yeah. Often the response takes people by surprise, but it does tend to have a bit of an anchoring effect for people. Yeah. And lastly, is there a go-to quote on leadership that's had the most influence over your personal leadership career? Can I give you two? Sure. So, you know, so one is, and I think this was from Peter Drucker, the, you know, well-known management guru, where he says, you know, in battles, we need heroes. In business, a hero is a single point of weakness. Right. And that, to me, highlights, you know, sort of the differences in the way that you need to look at things. And then, you know, the other one is from, you know, sort of another American president, Teddy Roosevelt, who said that farming looks pretty simple when your plough is a pen and you're a thousand miles from a cornfield. (laughs) And I think the implication there being about the importance of being on the front line rather than sort of making all of your decisions and thinking that the situation that you might see in a headquarters or in a boardroom or in a, you know, sort of a corporate headquarters environment it may not be the same as what you're actually sort of seeing on the front line. So, yeah, those are two of my faves. Well, James, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today on the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. It's been fascinating. I reckon we could have talked for another hour or two at least on some of these stories, and I, and I certainly look forward to that. Yeah. But all the best to you and look forward to catching up with you sometime and somewhere in the world wherever we may have a opportunity to do that. And, uh, again, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. No, uh, thank you, Martin. And yeah, look forward to catching up again, maybe over a virtual beer if we can't do one in person for a while. Sounds awesome. Thank you. Cheers. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.